Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. This is Jeff from Seattle, and I just need more. So I went to patreon.com slash partners in crime media, and I got more every week. Join me. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, TV. And this week, it's an all Betty Broderick special. We'll talk about the LA Times new podcast on the 1909 double homicide entitled It Was Simple. Then we'll discuss the not completely unrelated TV adaptation called Dirty John, the Betty Broderick story. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and slightly less puffy hair man, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Are you uh, referring to the fact that you gave me a coronavirus haircut? I did. Isolation haircut. It wasn't bad. It's not bad. I mean, I'm not a pro, but it could be worse. Yeah. The headphones fit on easier now. Yes. I took away the little Dershowitz poofs, as I've come to think of them. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't look at that anymore. Also joining us is journalist True Crime. Crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and proliferate podcaster, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. Yeah, that's me. I'm I'm on a roll right now. You really are. You're really stealing yeah. our thunder, Laura. Stealing our audience. I know. Yeah. Stealing our thunder, you know. But you know, yep. whatever it takes to get those downloads, you just go for them, Laura Bricker. It's yeah. fine. All fifty people that are listening to my new podcast, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for coming. <laughs> thank you for listening. I really appreciate it, <laughs> Laura. You should start a separate Patreon for that. There's a, there's one right on the podcast page. You can donate directly to the podcast. Nice. So perfect. Mm-hmm. Also, do you want to just say what that podcast is called, by the way, before we move on, in case anybody is interested in checking it out? Yes, it and it has been compared to a Norman Rockwell like. Uh, uh, podcast. It is called Exeter Life. Who compared yeah. it to that? I don't know. Some <laughs> random reviewer said it was like Norman Rockwell. Like I was, and you know. And finally, with us is our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and the host of the Strange Arrivals hit podcast from iHeartRadio, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Well, Kevin, I, I want to just, we're going to do some business after the first ad break and do a little bit more about our Patreon, but I do want to encourage any listeners uh, who are patrons right now to check out our after show this week. Mm-hmm. A couple special things going to be featured. Some requested impressions of you doing Ruth Langmore as other people, which is a special request from listeners. This is the curly-haired blonde from Ozark. Yes. 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 And also... Jesus Christ! (laughs) And also, we're going to be talking about some of the many Peabody Award winners, including a couple of our favorite podcasts, In the Dark, and Dolly Parton's America, and some of the TV shows that we also reviewed. So we're going to be talking about that in the after show, and we'll talk about the rest of what we're talking about in the after show after the first ad break. Peabody judges have a good taste. They have good taste. In the Dark has won twice. 
So, Laura Bricker, before we lead off the show, um, what happened to you today? I heard some references to some kind of like craziness going on. What's happening in your life? Well, first of all, it's not just that my cats are killing a lot of chipmunks over here. Apparently, New Hampshire is in the midst of a chipmunk apocalypse. Mm, Laura, I told you this like two weeks ago and you didn't believe me, remember? Yeah. So (laughs) the chipmunks are everywhere. But that's not the real issue at my house today. The real issue is now there is an influx of ants at my house. And usually like we have... Have like that couple weeks in the spring where we have some ants and then they go away. Yeah. No, they are multiplying. So today I had to call my friend the pest reliever. Um, and so she came out to relieve me of pests and sprayed my house for ants. Um, but they are everywhere. Like, I feel like I'm losing my mind. Laura, what's your friend's name who owns this business? Her name is Mary Weaver, the pest reliever. Okay. Now, Laura, <laughs> just, just for real. Laura, just, I mean, she just got a free plug on the show. So good on Mary Weaver, the pest reliever. But Kevin and Toby, are there any semantic flaws with that name, the pest reliever? Is anybody else picking up on the fact that it sounds a little bit like she's giving the pests some relief by perhaps not catching them. <laughs> Performing a sexual favor. Oh. Wow. Honey yeah, it, does, it sounds like a euphemism. Yeah. Well, it sounds like when you hate your husband and you want him to leave you alone for two weeks. Oh, I had to do a little pest reliever last night. <laughs> oh, no. Because there was an infestation. Well, <laughs> there was. She is. A wild preacher's daughter, so I don't know. But um, it was one of her employees who came out today, and I said, "I'm sorry, you have to crawl under my porch because I think my cats have some dead chipmunks down there." Oh. And she said, "That sounds so sexual. <laughs> I had to crawl under my porch because of dead chipmunks." <laughs> But then she said, it's okay. I have dead animals in the back of my van. And I was like, oh, your van also says wildlife removal. Oh, my God. She's basically that chick that Phoebe Waller-Bridge played on Run. Yes. Yes. We came to my house today. I was like, oh, my God. I think Mary Weaver needs to make an appearance in your Leave it to Bricker podcast. I really want to meet Mary Weaver. Lover or leaver. Oh my God. Mary Weaver, lover of beaver. <laughs> oh, my God. Remover of beaver. Oh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Mary Weaver, well, beaver reliever. <laughs> wow. Mary, I hope you don't listen to this podcast, but if you do, we just plugged your business for free for like three minutes. Need your beaver. Relief. <laughs> Sexually oh, innuendo in innuendo <laughs> laced oh, <no>. euphemisms. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh man. No, she's good. I- I'll be glad to include her in a future episode because she has a lot to say. It's so funny. I always think of people who don't live in the country who don't get to enjoy some of our country accoutrement. Mm-hmm. One of them being all like the clever slogans that septic companies give themselves on the sides of their vans. <laughs> <laughs> Like they come to like pump out your nasty septic tank and they park their big van in the front of their big truck and it says yeah. like, we're number one in the number two business. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I feel like Mary Weaver Pest Reliever is like right there in that sweet spot. Oh, yeah. She, she and I had a big, the last time, actually, I almost included her a while back because she was uh, telling me about how they uh, get bed bugs out of, out of places. And I was like yeah. fascinated by that. I you know like, how you get rid of bed bugs? You take anything that has bed bugs in it and put a big pile and set that pile on fire is how you get rid of bed bugs. You condemn the building and then tear it down. (laughs) All right. Are you guys ready to review some battery product content on this podcast? Let's do it. 
Let's get it done. I know Toby's super excited. <laughs> Leading off. In 1989, Broderick broke into her ex-husband's house in Hillcrest and shot him along with his new wife while they were sleeping. She was arrested later that day. You could look at this then as a story beginning and ending in two marital beds. In 1969, it was Betty and Dan's honeymoon bed. And in 1989, it was Dan's bed with Linda his new wife of not quite seven months. From the makers of the Dirty John podcast, LA Times Studio is out with a four-part retrospective of Betty Broderick's life and the murders of Dan and Linda Broderick, entitled It Was Simple. Pulitzer and Emmy-winning columnist Pat Morrison provides a primer on the case of high-society domestic high drama. The man and woman who had stood at an altar 20 years before and made everlasting vows, now they were close to each other again. For murder can occupy as intimate a space as love, so that dearest Betts could hear darling Dan say, Okay, okay, you got me. Morrison brings us the voices of friends, lawyers, and journalists surrounding the case, but also explores how over the years, public perception of Betty went from crazy housewife to folk hero. You married, and for a while, certainly did appear to have the Beaver Cleaver family. When we met, we were very happy together. I thought we did have a perfect marriage. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from It Was Simple. So if you want to remain spoiler free about this historic podcast, for which you could look up all of the details on the Internet, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. All right. I have a question for everyone. Yeah. Why is this case getting attention right now? Does anybody have a guess about that? Toby Ball, what do you think? I honestly... That was, to me, the biggest question surrounding all of this stuff was why anybody would care at this point about any of this. Well, I have a pretty good guess. What's that? Well, when LA Times Studios and all the other people involved sold the podcast Dirty John to Spike TV or whoever you know was running- It was Bravo. Or Bravo, that's what it was. Yeah. When he sold it to them, he said, great, we need two seasons. Yes. And they're like, well, John dies at the end of the first season- so the second season needs to be another case. That we can report, that there's reporting and to draw yes. from, etc. And so a bunch of people brainstormed and said, well, what other case can we do where we have this sort of weird domestic angle? And so, you know, the Broderick case has been around for a long time. Nobody's doing that. Mm, and we have a lot in our archives probably, right? Right. And so I don't know if it was contractually obligated to do so or it just seemed like a good idea. But it seems like this podcast is time to coincide with the release of the TV show. Yeah, I mean, they both are. This is a production of the L.A. Times, this podcast. And L.A. Times Studios Mm -hmm. is credited for the production of the TV show. You guys know those are two different things, right? No. Okay, so let me just explain it because this is how the ecosystem works. Mm -hmm. The L.A. Times is the newspaper. Right. They produce the journalism content. They produced um, Dirty John season one. Mm -hmm. L.A. Times Studios is the production arm of the L.A. Times. We did review one L.A. Times Studios podcast. Man didn't, in the Window? Yeah, Man in the Window yeah. didn't quite have the journalism chops. of, mm-hmm. of some. It does have some, but not all. So L.A. Times Studios is their entertainment arm that they have spun off for other media projects. Mm-hmm. So L.A. Times Studios might draw from L.A. Times projects and then, you know, sell them to say, 
get them represented by an agency like William Morris, Mm -hmm. who then sells them as these package deals. So I noticed that this is an L.A. Times podcast. It's got reporting in it. And then the TV show is an L.A. Times Studios affiliated production. So they clearly were picking all the meat off this buffalo, (laughs) right, to make make this like uh, multi-pronged project. There was at least one meeting with all those people in the same. (laughs) Very, very likely. Laura, did you, were you familiar with this case before listening to this podcast? I wasn't. And at first I got it confused with that War of the Roses case. So tell me about, Laura, what you think about the format of this podcast. It was simple. I mean, it does kind of start out, you know, Pat Morrison, the first episode, a lot of it is exposition that almost sounds like an arty essay, right? It's true, too, that this case pulls up a chair and has a seat at our dinner tables and in business lunches and family get-togethers. A means of measuring our families and our marriages. Like, well, she's pretty miserable, but she's not going to go Betty Broderick on him, you might hear. Yeah, I actually, I like this. Like, first of all, the music and the theme song is so catchy that I can't get it out of my head. (laughs) I literally find myself walking around being like, oh, you should have been watching or whatever that little, and I'm like, so, and I liked how right up front, it's very clear to follow. It's like, why are we telling this story? We're not telling the story because there's anything new. We're talking about kind of why does this story remain so fascinating to people and why are people still drawn to learning about this case? And, you know, it's it's laid out very clearly. Um, there's definitely interesting people that we hear from, but it is sort of told just it's kind of a retelling of the story, but with people still kind of commenting on it, you know, present day, um, looking back sort of retrospectively about the case. But, you know, it was definitely something that for me, who did not know about this case, gave a really good overview going into it. But it was is an overview that was told in a way that was, you know, easy to digest and definitely something you could breeze right through. Kevin, what did you think of this writing? Yeah, I mean, I like the sensibility of the podcast in general, especially the first episode. It's been around a long time, and there are a lot of people, particularly in California, who know the ins and outs of the case. There's another generation of the public that doesn't, but the way to walk the line between assuming your audience knows too much and assuming they know nothing was to look at it a little more like we're going to tell the story, but also talk a little bit about what was going on and why it resonated and how people are interacting with Betty and with her story today. Mm which is not something we've seen in a lot of different podcasts and seems so obvious. I mean, if you listen to any of the you know Wikipedia Brown True Crime of the Week podcasts where people Google a story and talk about it for an hour, then you probably know what happened. But as far as a more like actual first-person uh, interviews and things like that, you get a little of it here, enough so that you can tell the story, but not it's going to be a, we're going in cold and we're going to recreate the the crime i actually have a theory as to why i mean this case was huge and i don't know toby i know that you don't pay attention to much in pop culture so you may not like fully remember how huge this case was but i do remember those oprah interviews i do remember this being a constant presence on the news and in in talk shows and in in newspapers and stuff but toby i just want to ask you about a a, like a a contextual thing about the era because i kept thinking about this when i was listening to the podcast I kept thinking, like, the murder was in 1989. The case played out over the couple years after that. This, to my recollection, was at kind of the height of, like, an almost, like, 50s to 60s style culture war happening in the United States. The post-Reagan 
uh, pre and beginning of Clinton era conversation where, Toby, remember how Hillary Clinton on the campaign trail wore all those like dopey 1950s headbands and shared her cookie recipe in an attempt to seem more domestic? Like this was part of the conversation, like a woman's identity being her marriage. And we do hear in those Oprah tapes when Betty Broderick, who, by the way, at the time she gave those interviews, was in prison for murdering two people. We hear her say, like, the contract of my marriage and everything that I was promised, I was deceived. And you hear people, like, cheering in the audience. And to me, I just kept thinking of that, like, political moment. You know, that was, like, when the movie Pleasantville came out. You know, this looked to sort of, like, Mm -hmm. this utopian past and people being afraid of a progressive future. I don't know. Did Toby, did you think of any of that? Or were you just very fixated on the fact that why are we listening to this right now? <laughs> well, I guess there are a couple things. Just your sort of description of this makes it seem like kind of like the Dan Quayle murder or something mm-hmm. that it's, it seems to kind of sum up his, uh, you know, kind of standing as, you know, I wear your scorn as a badge of honor, you know, traditional American values, all this stuff. So I guess the two things I thought about were one, you know how sometimes you know people who are about your age or maybe like slightly older, but they seem like they're from a completely different generation. Yeah, like they seem like <laughs> this seemed like those people to me mm-hmm. in that they were still living these and. and Partly, maybe it was uh, a product of their conservative Catholicism, I guess, is the way it certainly the way it made it seem is that they, they're, they're sort of outside these larger societal trends that, you know, you always see in like Time magazine or whatever about women's liberation and the deterioration of the nuclear family and all this stuff. Like those things were still valued. Part of what seemed interesting to me about the story that neither one of these things really gets into was her trying to maintain this while he seemed to be kind of breaking away from it a little bit once they became successful and, you know, they were living the high life in Southern California. Was it sort of a culture war within their marriage? Oh. That seemed to me sort of like an interesting angle on all this that neither one of these things really looked into. I actually disagree. I actually think the TV show does better with that now that you say it. But I'm wondering if the popularity of talking about the case at the time did reflect that real culture war that was happening politically at that time. Because I had absolutely never even heard her name before this got mentioned <laughs> last week. I can't comment on that. Yeah. The other weird thing is that this stuff comes out like right at a time when our sort of concerns as a country right now are on the exact opposite of this case. Right. You know, because in a lot of ways, this case, other than the murder part of it, which obviously is the thing about it, but beyond that, it's really a privileged white family uh, going through a pretty, it's common enough that it's a cliche of a guy getting successful and then trading in his wife for a younger woman. Mm. And so in that, it just seems, it seems so far away from the concerns that we're dealing with right now as a nation, which is, you know, systemic racism, cop culture, things like that. I mean, it is hard not to listen to something like this that's, that's about a serious thing. I mean, it's one thing to listen to like Wind of Change and think like, this is escapist. It's about a story that's very different than we're thinking about. I agree. And I I do hope there was a conversation, you know, at some point about the timing of the release of it, you know, whether or not it's escapist enough, et cetera. I hope there was that conversation. I always do when something, you know, of this is released that feels that tone deaf, as Toby described. Kevin, I have a question for you. A thread in the podcast is the folk heroization of Betty Broderick. As Mm -hmm. I mentioned, she appeared on Oprah twice. The ratings were really high. It did spark this debate over sort of like 
um, I think in some ways a, a well-founded debate over like community property and, you know, women's roles as homemakers being devalued, uh, you know, when community property laws were passed. And also, you know, some of the maybe substantiated gaslighting that Dan Broderick did to Betty, which, you know, is, I just will say, is not super uncommon in relationships, especially relationships that are coming apart. But, Mm -hmm. you know, given her pathology and her background, like you could see maybe how she'd be triggered by that gaslighting, obviously not justifying in any way uh, her acts of violence or murders of two people. But what do you think of the the folk heroization of Betty Broderick? Your last line there is exactly what it is. Not to uh, justify someone killing two people, but, and then comes a tacit victim blame, which we wouldn't do for anybody else. Dan played a role in getting shot because he was going through a divorce. He got messy, and Toby's right, it's common enough that we see, especially if you've been through a divorce, that people act poorly and... They lie. They lie, and they, you know, your relationship with the other person doesn't improve after you say... I'm going to divorce you. Correct. In that process, we saw that this was a very uncommon divorce proceeding. It lasted for years. It was a mega divorce. Yeah. Betty dragged her feet and did things, you know, did not take a typical legal route to it. She, you know, seems to be in denial and wants to keep she her marriage. She lit all of his clothes on fire on the lawn. <laughs> I right. mean, let's be right. real. She, yes. I just do not see anything exculpatory in the tale of how it was a bad divorce. But, yeah, for whatever reason, people want to say, I don't condone murder, but good on you for That's not what standing. I said. I'm not saying But that's what people said at the time. But, yeah. but if you go apparently to these Facebook groups that Pat tells us about, it's all about, well, yeah, it's too bad about Dan, but Dan shouldn't have done those things. Facebook fan pages for Betty are filled with comments expressing support and sympathy. One fan, Deanna, wrote, every woman who has been treated badly by a man feels her pain. The Facebook page memorializing Dan and Linda Broderick gets a lot fewer likes. It's a kind of victim blaming we would never think to do with anybody else. Lara, what do you think? Because I feel conflicted. I will say it again. In no way condone the acts of violence that include, by the way, driving a car into somebody's house when the kids are home and all the other just kind of mayhem and destruction that she did. Throwing a cream pie. That being said. But... There's, but this is not a but. We do this, by the way, all the time with people who commit crimes on this show and their way that they're examined. We do. Mm-hmm. We look at someone's circumstances. We look at them as human beings. And I do not want to dehumanize Betty Broderick, even though she did a horrible thing. She's still a human being. Mm-hmm. So I just I'm asking this question. Don't butt me, Kevin. Well, I want to hear what the question is. Laura Bricker, did you find yourself, as I will confess I did, having some at least some feelings of empathy for somebody who is at the other yeah. side of a gaslighting campaign, that's if nothing enough. else. Yeah, that's fair enough. Oh, no, I absolutely did. I definitely had a lot of moments where I felt like some rage at the way that she was being treated by Dan as things were breaking down, especially when you see the way that she was being sort of left out of the loop about certain things and the way that... You know, he was diminishing things that she was saying. These weren't true. This didn't happen. And I definitely felt sympathy for her because I felt like the awareness mental health wise of some of the factors that may have been, you know, at play with regard to what she was going through 
wasn't necessarily what we are, you know, what we have today. And as I was listening to this, I was definitely getting fired up because I'm thinking she should not have murdered Dan. And Linda. And Linda. I know. And Linda's the forgotten victim. Poor forgotten Linda. Everybody. And I forget about Linda. You know, the ending. Yes. That that I I don't want to say, oh, yeah, good. She should have gone and done that. But I definitely have some sympathy for what she was going through and the fact that she really, you know, put him through law school, helped him out, supported him. And there, there was more at play here. And, and obviously her reaction was off the charts, but I definitely did feel some empathy for what was happening with her. Laura, do you suspect, we obviously are not doctors and we cannot know, but do you suspect that she suffered from some mental health issues that go undiagnosed in this podcast and probably undiagnosed in her life? I did kind of wonder about that as I was, you know, looking at her upbringing and then, you know, how this all played out. I mean, not for nothing, but you don't just go drive your car into the front of somebody's house. Correct. You do not. (laughs) A broken heart does not make you act like a crazy person. You think? Yeah. No, it does not. It does not make you light somebody's clothes on fire. It does not make you murder two people. It does not. Yeah. I believe that Betty Broderick suffers from some severe mental health issues. Agreed. Yeah. She probably, I don't know if how she, if she's been treated in prison, I don't know. But even hearing her talk about the crime, she is so unbelievably fixated on things that cannot be changed. And I think my empathy for her comes from the fact that I know a person who suffers from some mental health issues who was married to a very powerful lawyer who did the exact same things to her Mm -hmm. in their divorce that happened to Betty Broderick in this divorce. Mainly the gaslighting stuff, the power differential, the use of the courts to sort of batter somebody into silence, and the helplessness that comes on the, the other person's side of that, of not being believed, of not being whatever. I really felt for that frustration, but obviously Betty Broderick's mental health issues work sort of the elephant in the room, I think. Kevin, quick question. Mm-hmm. Money sort of playing into the story. It's it's not atypical for sensational right. divorce, right? Yeah, I mean, it was I, the, the discussion about there was a recorded telephone call between Betty and one of the sons, and she says, I'm going to get all the money or whatever it is. I don't think she's a gold digger. I don't think that was the issue, but a lot of the issues did revolve around money. The money reflected uh, her freedom because he controlled the purse strings during the estrangement. It was also his primary motivation for success was money. We hear right. that over we and over that. again. We yeah. know that. He called himself it Count de Monet. Count de Monet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm going to adopt now. No, you're not. We have, we're Count de No-No Monet. The count to, but money to her also kind of represented the fruits of the marriage where she felt like she was not uh, properly being recognized. At one point she was getting $16,000 a month Mm -hmm. in in the late mid eighties and was like still fighting about like most people, your lawyer would say, look, I know you're hurt and everything, blah, 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 but let's not mess with this. Don't take 16 grand and run. You know, I mean, I do believe that she had mental health issues and that they, she just could not, did not want the help, wasn't offered the help. She could have been in a better place. And that's how we got here. But I, I think one of the interesting things that just kind of got brought up is if, if you reverse the roles, this is just a, a stalker thing, right? Hmm. Yeah. She, she's acting like a stalker, but she doesn't have the same weapons isn't exactly the right word, but yeah. the same wherewithal as you know, most men who are stalkers do in terms of being able to physically intimidate. That was kind of a weird passage where Pat was telling us like, and it, and it was framed in the in the um, the frame of like, why did this case get so much attention? And it was like, 
when just a few months before, a man had killed his wife and two daughters or whatever, and they played it over this, like, tinkly, light music. In Washington state, a month after Dan and Linda's murders, a man gunned down his ex-wife, their two daughters, and the woman's new husband, while the latter was in the bedroom on the phone to sheriff's deputies. A few months before the Broderick killings, right up the freeway from La Jolla, a man was ordered to stand trial for slashing his ex-wife's throat. He was afraid she'd use her new $727,000 in lottery winnings to go back to court to get full custody of their kids. I thought that was a weird frame. I think, Toby, the way you framed it was better, was that you reversed the roles here, and you're talking about a predatory stalker, uh, not a wronged woman who, you know, if I can't have you, no one has. That's a very interesting way to look at it, Toby. But the way that section was produced, I think, bothered me. Um, Toby, I have one final question for you. What do you think of this story about this alleged conversation about Dan hiring a hitman that another guy overheard at Harrah's in Las Vegas years before the murders and is completely sure beyond a reasonable doubt, not 100 percent, but beyond a reasonable doubt that it was Dan Broderick talking about hiring a hitman to kill Betty? And he started talking about the things he was going to do to drive her crazy. And the whole point of driving her crazy was she was going to drive her crazy so that she committed suicide. And there was another man sitting at the bar, and he said, well, why don't you try a hitman? It was a little hard to wrap my head around where they were going with that. It's as they say, thin gruel. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much I would trust that guy's memory about it. And I'm not sure how it really bears on the case anyway. I mean, it doesn't seem like he ever actually did. It was just kind of weird. In some ways, it seemed like the tease at the end of episode three about a hitman. I was like, oh, shit, what's that all about? And then when you find out, it's like, oh, some guy told a story about this. Laura, what did you think about this anecdote? I mean, obviously, Betty's defense attorney wanted to put him and his former girlfriend on the stand to yeah. say, like, it was definitely this man and this woman and this thing happened. But at the same time, substantively, who knows, right? What did you think of that story? Well, I thought it was interesting, you know, because I was still at that point having some of my lingering rage from earlier anecdotes about Dan. And so I was kind of listening to this thinking, you know, yeah, she never knew if this actually even was him and who knows if it was or not. But it, it sort of goes into this twisted, dysfunctional picture of what was happening at the time as their marriage was breaking down and sort of just lent further credibility to the fact that there was a lot of dysfunction going on between the two of them as this was going on. And it wouldn't surprise me if this happened. If it didn't happen, it wouldn't surprise me if something else happened because there was a lot of stuff going on between them. It was just crazy. It reminded me of the case, and I know we've talked about this case a lot, but the case where we, you know, that happened in my town where the guy yep. allegedly hired the people to terrorize his, um, I think she, at that point, estranged wife or ex-wife, like they, the guys that broke in and like, you know, they burned her parakeets in the oven and like put a pipe bomb in her mailbox and like drove her crazy. It kind of reminded Tried me of Tried to that get her to commit suicide. Yeah. yeah. If only somebody would write a book about that case. We wrote a book about that case. It's called Legally Dead. You yeah. can get it wherever you get your mass market paperbacks. Yeah. <laughs> Soon to be an audio book. It was the same exact story. I just yeah. kept thinking when I was listening to this, like- Me too. This is the Bader case, yes. except she killed him. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yes. But in every other way, it's just like the Bader case. But he was a lawyer and it's the same thing. And it's the same power differential and that manipulation and that control and that 
like even it, it reminded me so much like, oh, when there would be like a report to the police, oh, she's crazy or exactly. she's mentally ill. Don't listen to her. It was an interesting detail. But Kevin, let's be honest. I'm not going to ask you to speak yeah. for you. <laughs> I will speak for me as somebody who yeah. went through a very painful divorce. Right. And as somebody who knows many people who've been through very painful divorces. And know zero hidden men. There is a moment and at some point, at the lowest point of every painful divorce, where you turn to a friend and say, and don't mean it, but say, it would just be so much easier if he were dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> There's that low, yeah. low it's, it's just, and it's not obviously something that any like normal person I, would follow through yes, on. Yes, everybody. It is yeah. a fantasy in the lowest part of the breakup. And I just kept finding myself thinking like... Was this that moment for Dan where he was just like miserable? And Harris? And he had this conversation with somebody? Uh, Who knows? Who knows? It's certainly not evidence that he was actually going to hire a hitman. The reason I don't find it credible is because we would have to believe he would have this discussion while they're still married in Las Vegas. Well, she was wearing a spangly dress. Before the marriage breaks apart that he feels the need to have her assassinated but he wouldn't do it for the five years right of an actual terrible divorce yes when it really would benefit him for her to be dead well what makes more sense would be if and, he and were, it's irrelevant because it wasn't a self-defense exactly thing anyway. but but yeah, the yeah. thing that would make more sense would have been if he were there with linda mm-hmm. and it was post breakup and he were talking with somebody about it yeah. and that the the girlfriend thought right. she saw Linda and it was yeah. he she thought it was the wife but yeah. it was actually and we don't Linda. know that it's Dan at all actually listen so, yeah. it was not super credible no, but it just goes to the the, the narrative that Dan had it coming. It also goes to the narrative that the judge didn't allow a bunch of stuff in. Yeah. Because we know that to be true as well. Yeah. All right. Well, let's do what we do. That was the correct legal call, however, on that piece of evidence. (laughs) Let's let our listeners know, should they check out the four-part podcast? It was simple from the LA Times, a podcast in four parts about the murder of Dan and Linda Broderick at the hands of Betty Broderick. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down for this podcast? Thumbs up. Uh, I liked this podcast. It was interesting. I didn't know about the case before I started and uh, the music knocked it out of the park for me. But there was also a lot of really interesting details and it was told in a way that was easy to follow and just flowed in a very easy to follow narrative. And, uh, you know, four parts was just the right amount of time to tell the story. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for It Was Simple from the LA Times. Yeah, I give it a thumbs up. I'm not like hugely enthusiastic about it, but like Laura said, you know, it tells the story well, competently. You know, I, I don't think there's anything like spectacular about it or whatever, but you do understand the story and you know, they have sort of, she has sort of a point of view. And so sort of a, a mediumly enthusiastic thumbs up. What about you, Kevin Flynn? Thumbs up or thumbs down for It Was Simple? Uh, thumbs up for me works on two different levels. One, it uh, prepares me for the TV show, which you talk about, because I didn't know about the case. And it didn't need to be a 10-part Peabody Award <laughs> <laughs> podcast narrative. I figured out, you know, the fine details, and when I see those in the TV uh, melodrama, which we'll talk about, they, they rang true. It also was a good look back on what was interesting about this case, why it resonated, why it resonates still. And uh, I think for that, it accomplished what it set out to do, which is also probably fill a contractual obligation for a two-season television deal. 
I'm thumbs up. <laughs> um, yeah, I liked but didn't love this podcast. A thumbs up for me. I'm not going to like gush and gush and gush about it. The things that were most interesting, I did think the writing was interesting. I'm not sure I would have made all the same choices, but I enjoyed listening to it. So I guess it was they were good choices. You know, there were some turns of phrase. At one point, she talks about, you know, the boys having to testify uh, in court. And she was like very green minds tackling a very black story there's mm-hmm. a lot of that sort of like uh purplish kind of prose but it worked here for some reason uh some of the production elements that sometimes it was very music heavy and sometimes it was very dry so some e- unevenness there um but overall it was a concise look at a case that I remember actually pretty well, and yet I learned some stuff that I didn't either know or remember. And I did like to look at some of the deeper issues around, for instance, no-fault divorce and the impact that that's had on, you know, the economic disparities between men and women and so forth. So, yeah, for the most part, for me, I like the podcast. So I'm going to give it a thumbs up. One last note, really like the cover art. I really, really do like the cover art. So thumbs up for me. All right, before we continue the show, Kevin, we have a little bit of business to discuss. Yeah. We do want to talk about the other stuff we're going to be talking about in the after show happening on Patreon right now. Yeah. We're going to be talking about the cancellation by the Paramount Network of the show Cops. Right. And Live, Live PD. PD, both of which were discussed in the podcast Running From Cops by our friend, the most talented podcaster maybe on the planet, Dan Taberski. Peabody Award nominated. Peabody Award nominated. But he did win some awards for that podcast, did he? Oh, not? sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we're going to be talking about that in addition to hearing your Ruth Langmore impressions as different people and also talking about some of the other Peabody Award winners, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So, Kevin, uh, before we continue the show, I have to ask you, do we have a Patreon patron saint of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Laura Chavez, and Wendy Martin, bless you. <laughs> Toby, do you have anything you'd like to say to the Patreon patron saints of the week? Yes, thank you so much for your support. Aww. Oh, that's so beautiful. It wow. is. It's angelic. Was I supposed to say something snarkier? No, I just got to tell you, Toby, um, I posted on our Facebook group this week that one of the things I'm most proud of in the last couple of years was being blocked by a certain very evil podcaster on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And your mom. Oh, <laughs> my mom? <laughs> Toby's mom mom said on that post that I made where I showed the screenshot of me being blocked by a certain Voldemort-esque worst person in the world true crime podcaster who is a racist and misogynist and all kinds of other things on the internet. His name should not be said. Your mother said that basically the people who block you are a sign of the quality of your character. Yeah. And I got to tell you, Toby, you need to tell your mom thanks for me, okay? You basically just did since she listens to the show. (laughs) (laughs) I've been blocked on Twitter by Toby's dad. What does that mean? I know. You really got him pissed off. (laughs) Basketball. (laughs) (laughs) Your controversial thoughts about Big Orange? (laughs) Big Orange? Syracuse, right? Aren't they big orange? What the hell are you talking? They are the orange. Oh, sorry. The orange man, oh. yeah. Big orange, whatever. <laughs> it's all Protestant stuff. Yeah, I see. The Irish aren't happy about that. I see. The fighting Irish are coming over. <laughs> well, we do that. We play the fighting Irish quite frequently, although I don't think it has the same sort of sectarian aspect to it that yeah, like Celt- Celtic Rangers does. Or like when you play like St. John's or Georgetown, right? That's funny. In the old Big East, we were really the, uh, we were sticking up for the you were the nemesis for the protestants yeah you were you were the nemesis you were my childhood nemesis as a yeah. as coming from a georgetown family just want to let you know that oh uh, you, you come from a georgetown family 
I do. It took almost six years for you to admit to that. Wow. <laughs> I'm saying these are just possible security questions for Rebecca's password if people want to try <laughs> to steal her identity. Her, her bank card is Hoya Saxa. That's yeah. I think we did the thing about what your porn name is based on the street you grew up on. Yep. You know, other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I just want to say I really hope Patrick Ewing's feeling better. I don't know if you guys know this, but he I was know. diagnosed yeah. with COVID-19. He's now coach of the Hoyas, the most famous player ever to come from the Hoyas team. And I just want to say, Patrick, I've been a fan of yours my entire life. I really think it sucks that the Knicks never won a championship when you played for them. And I hope you're feeling better. There's, there's like 10 to 12 like all-time great basketball players who never won a title because of <laughs> Michael Jordan. He's yeah. just one of them. It's he like is. Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, <laughs> John Stockton. You, know, you can just stack them up. He's the Ted Williams of basketball. <laughs> the Dan Marino. <laughs> well, we've really gone off topic here. Yeah, Should yeah. we go ahead and do our next review so that Laura doesn't fall asleep? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm like, this is them trying to appease me for this Betty Broderick fest. <laughs> I'm just looking at the ants closing in on me and thinking. Oh, my God. All right. Let's get it done. Moving on. You gave us a statement. Do you remember doing that? I do. I know. I just... I'm amazed it only took one bullet to kill Dan Broderick. For the makers of the Dirty John television show, USA Network is out with its eight-part melodrama on Betty Broderick's life and the murders of Dan and Linda Broderick. The show features Amanda Peet as Betty, a woman unable to come to grips with the end of her marriage, vacillating between winning back her husband and making him feel her pain. Did you think I wouldn't like this machine? Because I love it. I can say whatever I want and even have to talk to you. And every little word that I say is true, asshole. That's what you don't realize. I hope you're recording every last little word because every word I say is the truth. You son of a bitch! Dan is played by a very white-toothed, Christian Slater. We first see him as the rational party in a contentious divorce, but as the series plays out, we see him as an emotionally unavailable spouse, unafraid to use his legal acumen and financial leverage to leave the marriage on his own terms. I pay for your life. Everything about it. I pay for this house that you live it in. So if anyone's going to be getting out... It's you. We are going to be talking about plot points for Dirty John Season 2, The Betty Broderick Story. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Now, I'm going to throw something out there, and uh, Laura, I'd love you to be the first to react to it. Oh, boy. This show is campy, and it's fun, and it's dishy. Mm-hmm. But is it just me, or is it also kind of weirdly arty in a way? Like, it's out of order. It's told, like, in this very sort of, like, differently filmed to portray different eras style. Like, it does seem, like, a little bit arty, if you know what I mean. Like, what do you think of just the style of this show? I didn't call it arty. I think I thought of it, it was kind of, like, nostalgia. Like, I felt like as I was watching this, they, there was definitely, like, the sort of element of nostalgia in the time period when they were going back and forth between past and present. And, you know, starting right off with the Cindy Lauper theme song intro, I was like, Cindy Lauper? Oh my gosh. It's Stranger Things with Lawyers. I know. There's a lot of Cindy Lauper in yeah. the show, too. I know. I saw her in concert once at the Hampton Beach Casino a nice. few years back. <laughs> so take that, all you basketball talkers. Anyway. Um, <laughs> But when you say arty, I mean, I was looking at it like the way that they styled the scenes that they were filming. So when they're out to lunch and it's like, you know, in the 80s and it's like the ladies who lunch, it's like 
the melon with the cottage cheese. And I'm like, mm. oh, that's so vintage. And like, who orders that? Bring some, me that. Somebody who's not planning to take a bite. That's yeah. who. Well, and then it was like <laughs> Catalina dressing. And I'm like, and, and just like things that reminded me so much of that time period. But it was also the lighting in the way that they were filming. Like the lighting itself was a little bit softer and a little bit yellower. And it sort of added to that sort of nostalgia feel. And they did have a lot of great, you know, elements that I felt like from time periods that they were, you know, covering were really accurate, but also kind of added to that window into that time. Toby, your first five words of the notes you sent me were, it's not my thing. What do you mean it's not your thing, Toby? I mean, what's not to love about this series if you're Toby Ball? You know, I kind of got the campiness and I thought that might be fun. I just think it's really poorly conceived. You know, if you can get past sort of the surface stuff, I don't think the story is told very well. I think it spends a lot of time kind of checking off incidents without getting into any depth about anything. I thought the second episode... It was like a Wikipedia episode made into a TV show Hmm. where it's just like, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And we're going to have these actors that don't really look very much like Amanda Peet and Christian, uh, whatever his name is. Slater. uh, Christian Slater. uh, (laughs) You really don't know who any celebrities are, do you? I I, I mostly think about him as being uh, the foil in Archer. He was in Heathers as well. I know, I saw Heathers too. He's in a million things. I just spaced his name. I I know who he is. So I'm just going to say a couple things. Uh, I think Amanda Peet is super good in this. I can't. I mean, Christian Slater is just to me being Christian Slater. And I feel like he's he's like Morgan Freeman, where it's like Christian Slater as this character. Yeah. Christian Slater as that character. And Christian Slater, you know, if you grew up when I grew up, like he's somebody that you automatically kind of have to like because he's in a lot of things that you liked. Right. Amanda Peet is in a lot of things I like, but she's also in a lot of cheesy stuff. I think she's super good in this, even though she looks nothing like the real life Betty Broderick. They didn't go for like a, you know, a, a resemblance casting here. Mm-hmm. I do think it's campy. For me, it, I think, is working more than it was for Toby. Kevin, one thing I think we have to acknowledge is that this is the scripted version of this story. Yeah. And we do, because we just listened to the podcast, we do see some verbatim pulled from transcripts, pulled from diaries, like in the Marriage Encounter episode, for instance, where we know these things happen and these were the words. Yes. There are some elements of that in yes. it. But we also know because it's scripted, they are also adding some fictional scenes and they are creating fictional versions of these real life characters. What do you think they are trying to do with Betty in this fictionalized version of the story? That's a great question because I'm unsure how the producers want us to view Betty. In episode one, you're right, she's clearly unhinged and it seems like this is just going to be you know, seven more episodes of her behaving badly. <laughs> How can a house we have your lawyer without my consent? You're in violation of a court order. Orders, and you know it. But, you know, in the backstory, there are times when we see her as being very sympathetic. I'm scared. I don't feel like I'm worth anything. I feel like we are speeding in the dark, and I can't see what's up ahead. And I'm anticipating something terrible happening. We're losing touch with the world. Look at John and Dirty John is clearly not the hero, it's Deborah. She's the emotional center. How do we feel about Betty being the center of this story? I don't know. For me, the jury's out. Well, first of all, Linda has been completely erased so far in the part that we've it's seen. It's true, yes. She sort of comes in in episode four. In the first four. three episodes, yeah. If I were one of these people who felt like Linda Colcana or Linda Colcana had been erased from this story, mm-hmm. I'd be super fucking pissed watching the first 
three and three quarters episodes of this series, maybe even the first four episodes. But Laura, do you agree with Kevin that the series is trying to portray a more nuanced version of Betty? Because the fictionalized version of Betty, I found myself feeling a great deal for more so than I found her empathetic in the podcast. Oh, yeah, I absolutely. And I think there was a lot of the day-to-day relationship between Dan and Betty that we're seeing in this this dramatized version. And it was making me super angry um, because, again, it was like you're seeing the early days where, you know, he's in law school and she's helping him and it's all like this sort of rosy picture. And then you're seeing now where he's shutting her down. And I do feel like they are putting her in a different sort of spotlight than, you know, the podcast did in a way because, you know, she's definitely more sympathetic here because you really do feel like she's getting taken advantage of. And especially like one of the scenes that just like made me like lose it was when he gave her the wrong information about the court date. Wait a minute. He didn't give her the wrong date. She had the date and she just said, I don't, I can't do that. Oh, I thought he gave her the the friend said, said, you know, you can't, did you, the judge said that? No, no, it's okay. He makes all these changes. Who did you talk to again exactly? You know, Dan postpones hearings all the time. In fact, he postponed this one once himself. Himself, as in he actually did it himself on the phone or he had his lawyer make a formal request in writing. Well, if I had a lawyer who could make a formal request in writing, then I wouldn't need a postponement probably, would I? You really need to double check this, Betty. But it was murky because from Betty's perspective, she was always being lied to and taken advantage. Yeah. Right. And she was yeah. told at one point, if you don't show up, they can't do it. Because that yeah. that's in, And so that was sort of like the, her basis for not showing up. Well, she believed that she didn't show up, they couldn't do it. Little did yeah. she know that Dan would show up wearing a rose on his lapel, which apparently he did all the time. Yeah. Who's going to buy those roses? Does he have like a, just a big thing of them? in his fridge and he has to put one on every morning. <laughs> Was anyone else curious about that detail in the show? I mean, it must come from somewhere, right? Toby does it all the time. I don't know what's the big deal. <laughs> I do. You just get them wholesale. You put them in a fridge. <laughs> <laughs> um, Toby, one thing that I thought was interesting, I mean, there's a whole lot of time spent on, all right, let's keep in mind, Dan Broderick is not alive to defend himself. Mm-hmm. He's a murder victim. But it talks about this in both the podcast and we see it play out in the TV show in the fictionalized version of the TV show. Mm-hmm. That he goes to medical school, which, as we know, is not nothing, and then changes his mind and then goes to law school, basically extending this education thing through at least seven, eight, ten years. We don't know if he did a residency or whatnot. We don't know how long the actual medical school part of it was. Um, And then we see him sort of very much wishing to deny to everyone who asked that they ever had any humble origins of any kind. Now, Toby, I'm asking you to take a little stretch here because we are we see more of it in the scripted version. But assuming that came from somewhere, and we did hear some of it in the podcast. What do you think of that? Like a person who goes through all of that, puts his family through all of that sort of. I mean, it's a selfish endeavor in some ways to say, like, I could start a job now, but not going to do that, hon. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to do this other thing first. And then completely wants to deny that their hard times ever existed. Well, I think there's two things. One is, I think you have to be kind of a narcissist in order to, to put your family through that very intense time again. But he talks about that at the, in the third episode, I think, is when he says, you know, I always put succeeding and money ahead of people and my relationships so I think he's he's sort of cognizant of that. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. When they do have that little tiff about 
her sort of acknowledging that they had struggled earlier in front of one of his lawyer colleagues. Jump in, say something. (laughs) I think you deserve to be happy. I think you mean that. I do. You've earned it. You know, I, I think there's a thing about, you know, if he's a Harvard Law School graduate, you know, I, I think people want like a blue blood as their lawyer. I mean, I think that's kind of the the aura of that. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that that was something that he wanted and that she didn't get it. And again, I, we talked a little bit earlier about maybe a, a culture war in the marriage, but this this seems like a, a, a sort of a different way of looking at things and so that he's trying to create an aura about himself and she's trying to keep it honest as to their actual lived experience. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting. And I thought that was something that that maybe they could have gone into a little bit more. Because at the time, it, it just makes it seem like, oh, I don't want anybody to know. I was ever poor. But I think for somebody who's trying to become like a big high-powered lawyer, I think in his, in his mind... He's better off, you know, having that elite of the elite Harvard Law thing about him. Yeah, one of the things I I, I kept thinking about was like, and and correct me if I'm wrong, my impression from the podcast is that she didn't come from like like wealth wealth, but that she grew up comfortably, right? Seemed to be. So she grew up. She comfortably. went to some Catholic school where they took riflery. Yeah, yeah. So she grew up comfortably in this conservative but comfortable family. So for her, sort of going through the lean years at the beginning of a marriage was sort of part of the ritual of being married. You go through the lean years and you support your man through that. And Mm -hmm. then you, that's not me, by the way, talking and that's sort of the Betty Broderick thing. And then you sort of enjoy the fruits of that with him. So I think she very much probably thought like this is part of the rhythm of marriage. Maybe my parents went through lean times. And he sees that as more of like an area of shame, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's like, again, as as Toby said, wants to come across as this elite of the elite. But there's also like, um, this is the thing that they touch on in the show, but don't go deep enough into like a denial of the Catholic roots. Because there's sort of like like a working class kind of like... Uh, like sniff to that, mm-hmm. like for some parts of America, especially like in the 60s, 70s, think about the Kennedys, you know, like being Catholic is like sort of like associated with like, you know, you know, Kevin, it's like more of like a, a blue collar working class mm-hmm. and like, and he, and we see him in the show being like only stupid people believe in religion or whatever and she's completely floored by it. Like, where did that come from? And I think Toby's right. The culture war in the marriage really is something that the show could have done better. Toby, you're making me think about this a lot. <laughs> um, sorry, sorry about that. No, 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 no. I like it. It's it's nuance. Uh, Kevin, question for you. Yeah. Each episode of the show ends with some sort of you know game changer, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. The, the, they're trying to do this thing as if we don't know the story, which apparently the three of you didn't. But whatever. Um, <laughs> what do you think of the way they structured the episodes? I, I mean, episode Dan is dead, or there's another woman, or whatever. I did like it, and right, they do a little time hopping, uh, but they needed to sort of do, instead of like just doing a whole episode, they go back to 1960. They kind of spread it out. They keep the main action of the story going in the late 80s the divorce but we do get to see them at different periods and continue this growth in their marriage and in the story and to that end i like how they held things back i mean you don't know until the end of the first episode that dan is dead and then you i mean don't, i knew but... you know yes I knew. okay <laughs> but as soon as you come in know nothing yeah. right and then you don't know until the end of the second episode that dan had a wife named linda who also died mm-hmm up until this time, we pretty much see Betty as a irrational pest, 
and Dan as even-tempered and put-upon yep. and rational. But at the end of the third episode, see him kind of swing around and I'm like, I'm going to give it back to you. Mm. And so I, I think that's good because it changes it up each time. Yeah, I mean, the love bombing you see at the beginning of their relationship and sort of the build-up. I mean, Laura, they, they do build fictionally. Again, Kevin, I'm speaking fictionally. Uh-huh. They do build a credible case that Betty had good reason to believe this was a forever deal the way it was sold to her in the early years of their marriage. Do the producers not fictionally make you kind of buy into that narrative that she would believe that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think when you watch the, you know, build up and the background of what she's investing into the relationship and the marriage and supporting him and the children and they're all in this together because they're all going to be in this together for the rest of their lives. And you really do feel like that when you're watching this version of the early days of their relationship and then, you know, their early days of parenting. And, you know, again, I, it's like, I, I feel like I'm like the, you know, on the Betty bandwagon here because I feel such sympathy, but I do when I see the way that they're framing the story and, and I mean, you know, maybe that's the way they want us to feel as, as they're setting this up. But you definitely do come. I, I mean, I did. I came away feeling like I was seeing it from her side of the story. Oh, mm. poor Laura. I know. Poor Betty, though. Saw, you got Poor in. fictional Betty. Toby, there was, I think, a really cool scene. Uh, cool in that it fictionally tried to set up the contrast between the way that men in power view the dissolution of a relationship versus women uh, who may have less agency and less understanding of the reality of what's happening view the dissolution of a relationship. And it's a scene where we see Dan at a lunch roundup with three of his friends, uh, one, that dude from Melrose Place, uh, who's about to get divorced from his wife, and they're all sort of strategizing around tactics. When you do finally leave, make sure Yvonne knows that is what you're doing. Establish the legal date of separation definitively. That's the date a court will use to determine support, property interests and so on if you don't establish that date there's no way the two of you will agree on that later wow it must be exhausting to be so right all the time doc you get used to it (laughs) (laughs) and then you contrast that with the scene with the wives of these men three of them waiting for the fourth woman who is the unknowing wife of the one who's about the guy who's about to divorce her yeah and they're talking about what's going on with that marriage i was so relieved the jig was up cried and you came back from it. You both wanted to rebuild your marriage, and you did. And so can they. Toby, I really like this scene. I don't know if you saw it uh, the way that I did. Just tell me what you think about the way that the filmmakers here try to show the power differential between these lawyers who have all the cards, who understand how all of the money stuff works, sort of plotting for the undoing of this marriage, you know, contrasting with the sort of Pollyannic version of these housewives. I think they got halfway there because I think, like, what what purpose does this whole subplot serve? And I think it's basically to sort of lay out in their class and in their society and at that time how these things work. And so in that way, as you said, it's like the power differential, who's got agency, what people are thinking, the women want to stay with the men, the men are just like sort of coldly like, this is how you hold on to as much money as you possibly can. And 
it's et cetera, et cetera. I, th- I think what didn't get brought up, which to me seemed like a missed opportunity, is like, why is this happening anyway? Mm. Like, what what is it about the culture that makes it, you know, sort of semi-acceptable for these men to leave their wives for their secretaries? You know, it showed one part of the dynamic pretty well, but I kind of felt like it left a little bit on the floor, which which they could have, without much effort, but a little more thought, sort of given a little bit more nuance to the decisions that those men were making. And perhaps a little nuance into the decisions the women are making when they order for lunch a scooped out cantaloupe <laughs> full of cottage cheese. <laughs> but then the other thing is there doesn't seem to be any awareness on the part of the women of this dynamic. They also have no savvy of any kind. They're not saying like, hey... You go take all the money out of the checking account and close it down. You go make sure the life insurance. It's all the men mm-hmm. that have that yeah. agency. Yeah, they, they didn't have that wherewithal at that point. But, you know, Betty definitely had like that women's intuition as, you know, with re- regard to Dan's new secretary. Like she had that, you know, something was up. I loved when she was like hiding in the bushes in the lobby <laughs> pretending to read a magazine. I was like, oh, my mm. God, I totally would do that. That's the Laura Bricker move right there. Yeah. yeah. Ken, yeah, you better so. not hire an assistant named Linda. That's all we got to say. <laughs> all right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Dirty John Season 2, The Betty Broderick Story, airing on USA, but of course it's also available on demand. Lara Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down for this serialized story. I'm going to give it a thumbs up. It's not like a hugely enthusiastic thumbs up because it is, it's pretty cheesy. But at the same time, you know, I'll watch anything. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. Um, (laughs) I, I did like the vintage 80s feeling of the show the high-rise Levi jeans and some of the clothing, but also it was a, it's an interesting story. And I mean, Christian Slater. So I would say thumbs up. Give it a try. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Dirty John Season 2, the Betty Broderick story? I, I thought this was pretty poor. So I'll give it a thumbs down. You know, I think I've kind of gone through all my reasons, but I just... It could have been done in a way that didn't have to, like, hit all the high marks of their biographies and focus on certain things that they thought were important. Mm -hmm. And it's just like on a five minute to five minute basis, it just wasn't that good. I think I mean, my son came down while I was watching some of it and he kind of was like looking at it with squinted eyes and he kind of looked over at me and I was like, yeah, I'm doing this for crime writers. He's like, were you embarrassed? Were you embarrassed? Did you feel the way I feel when someone walks in on me watching the young and the restless Toby? It was a pretty melodramatic moment. I wish I could remember exactly what it was, but it was one of those things where it did seem like a soap opera. And I was like, oh God. <laughs> so anyway, thumbs down. Kevin Flynn, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Dirty John season two, The Betty Broderick story. Toby was a thumbs down. I'm shook. So this is uh, season two of Dirty John. To me, it seems like a very odd pairing between seasons one and two, because like we said, this is obviously the risk. So this is not the providence of the muses guiding the hand of the artist to the page to create something. I'm inspired to write about Betty Broderick. This is um, an effort to fulfill the second half of a two-season contract for uh, the original Dirty John, but it's okay. I kind of find it to be entertaining. The case is historical and very interesting to me. But, you know, it's like to make this a Dirty John 2, it's like they're saying, if you love steak, you'll love pork chops. Mm. (laughs) Well, would you? They are kind of different. Yeah. Nonetheless, uh, I'm enjoying uh, the shoulder pads and the uh, bespoke clothes and all of the 80s music that I'm sure... 
people who got married in the 60s didn't actually listen to. Hmm. Thumbs up. Yeah, so I'm going to give us a thumbs up, but I want to qualify it a little bit. Um, it's giving, I'm giving it a thumbs up because I find it very soapy and entertaining. And I, like Laura, to some extent, will watch almost anything. Yeah. Even things that I will later say, like, that's trash, but I can't help it. I watched it. The evidence being that I had a alone marathon last weekend watching all of those freaking terrible uh, Fifty Shades movies just because they were on and because I was bored. So there, I do have a component of that, Laura. I will watch anything. But I'm also giving it a thumbs up because there is an aspect to this where I think that as a creative approach to the storytelling, mm-hmm. I do like the casting of Amanda Peet as Betty Broderick, despite her having zero resemblance to Betty Broderick. I do like the fact that the show is playing with us by alternating between a beatific, innocent, sweet version of Betty Broderick and sort of helping us try to feel like getting in her shoes, like, would we feel as wronged or et cetera? The thing that troubles me is that as of this review, I know next week there'll be more. There's only there's four episodes out. So we're halfway through the series. It has erased the second victim of this crime so far. And it also has spent so much time playing with us and trying to get into the shoes to feel empathy for this woman that I, I, I hope, I'm just going to say at this point, I hope they also play the other side of it. Uh, with the same kind of craft. I hope they try to draw us into feeling horror at the crime that's ultimately committed. I don't know if they're going to, but based on what I've seen, I'm giving my thumbs up review to the fact that I am enjoying watching it in that same way you enjoy watching The Young and the Restless and then you sort of secretly turn it off when your family comes in the room because it's a little bit embarrassing to you. I can't help it though. I kind of like it. So thumbs up for me. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of the week. This week, Gary Ergonski of Cape Cod turned himself into police in York, Maine. This scofflaw could no longer stand his life on the run from the vacation state and paid a parking ticket he had received in 1978. Ergonski said he got the $3 ticket after a day trip to the beach and had always intended to pay it. He kept the citation in a drawer and even used it as a bookmark sometimes. <laughs> when they'd come across it, he and his wife would joke about the 40-year-old fine and his fear of getting caught by Maine officials. Ergonski sent the York Police Department a check for three bucks, plus the $1 late fee and a letter of polite apology. The ticket was in such a pristine state that police thought it was from 2018, not 1978. The cops say the ticket long precedes computer records and they've forgiven the fine. Today, the charge for an expired meter in York is $35. Ergonski is grateful and hopes to visit York and visit the station. He says he wants to share his thoughts on modern policing. Oh, God. So, panel, here's my question. Uh, Quote, I just forgot about it is not a great excuse, especially when you're using your ticket as a bookmark periodically. (laughs) Please provide Mr. Ergonski a better argument for not paying that ticket for 40 years. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um, Oh, boy. I mean, it's like it's like a fine wine. It gets better with age. Um, (laughs) But I don't know. I mean, maybe like holding it over himself like that, like it kept him on track and he didn't get any other tickets because he was reminded of that ticket because he was still looking at it from 1978. Very possible. Toby Ball, what about you? What is a better excuse for not paying a ticket for 40 years? Yeah, no, but I think he totally, you know, he played the system, man. He got out of his ticket. Kevin Flynn, what do you think is a better excuse for not paying that ticket for 40 years? Defund the police. (laughs) 
<laughs> that four bucks. It's that four bad. bucks, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they were hurting for it. All right, well, that is probably going to do it for us. Before we end the show, Lara Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> oh, we have something even better. A dog? Uh, we have a goat. Oh. oh. Do your goat, Kevin. Wait, Kevin has a great goat. what you're missing about kevin's goat is the face he makes when he makes the goat which is basically his whole face going completely limp and just his tongue sticking out it's very funny the long beard too yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) tell us about our goat of the week so our goat comes to us from ruthie uh known on twitter as ruthless joy uh, the goat woke her up at midnight by headbutting my bedroom window. She didn't have a name Jesus yet. Jesus Christ, goat. But I wish to call her Stampy, if that's okay. She's a total jerk, but I had to laugh. And I'm like, um, where do you live and why do you have a goat knocking on your window? And she said she lives on a farm in South Australia. And this was a newborn goat. Nice. But was now replaced as the baby they heard yesterday when one of the nannies had triplets. And she is mean about it. She got back to sleep at 2 a.m. So... There's lots of goats knocking on Ruthie's windows. And I had a goat growing up as well. So I, I feel like I like this goat of the week. I do enjoy myself a goat, except for the fact that their pupils go the way they go, which I think is super freaking weird. But I like everything else about them. Mm-hmm. Laura Bricker, if folks want to reach out to you with their random non-dogs or cats to be cat of the week, how can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you to give you advice for how you can dress more like Dan Broderick in the TV series, Dirty John Season 2. How can they find you on Twitter? Oh, Oh my God. Uh, at Toby Ball and H. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you to tell you where you can get those same caps that Christian Slater portraying Dan Broderick got in Dirty John season two, the Betty Broderick story. How can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers on Facebook discussion group on Facebook. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support this show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You will get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, plus our advice show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's extremely charming Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. Our line editor is the extremely handsome Henry Lavoie. Our social media and newsletter maven on maternity leave is my favorite Taco Bell stan, Meredith Plunkett. She also enjoys an edible arrangement, by the way. This show was recorded in the Oak Loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement that we have made it very difficult to drive a car into. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs up? <laughs> Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs I don't up. know, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca's always telling people what to say. One star. <laughs> oh, there she goes with that grating laugh again. Oh, God, cackle. <laughs> Shut up, Kevin. Jesus Christ, Rebecca. Look how she's always interrupting her husband. Poor Kevin can't even get a word in edgewise. Uh, One star. <laughs> Talk about culture wars. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Partners in crime media. media.